you brought a Bible with you, we are going to be in the book of Revelation this morning, Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 21. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that scripture will be on the screen behind me when we get to that point. Uh, and uh, you will also, if you are watching online, be able to watch it on whatever device uh, you are joining us on. Again, it's Revelation 9, verses 1 through 21. When you were a kid, no doubt, one of your favorite toys, you might not remember it, but I'm guessing that one of your favorite toys or one of your favorite things to play with was a balloon. Who didn't enjoy playing with a balloon when they were a kid? Nobody enjoyed? Okay, come on, y'all. Let's participate. Who didn't enjoy playing with a balloon? Okay, there you go. Thank you. Who enjoyed playing with a balloon last week? You still enjoy that, even as an adult, right? Balloons are fun. Um, You know, you have the game where you make sure it doesn't touch the ground or whatever, uh, and so, you know, when a kid sees a balloon, there is a certain joy in their eye because they know they're about to have a blast. My kids are that way. Uh, Cannon, our youngest, excuse me, Kai, whatever his name is. Kai, our youngest, especially, um, he, there's every now and then they'll be doing something at CDO that involves balloons and they'll send them home with the kids and he gets to take it home and play with it and keep it like it's his. But you also know, as a parent, that if you have multiple children, you need that many balloons. Can I get an Amen from every parent in the house, you need at least that many balloons uh, in order to make sure that everything's cool because suddenly something that has the potential for being really fun turns into like a knockdown drag out fight, right? Uh, it's to see who is the last man or last girl standing with the balloon in hand. You know, there can, there can be only one, right? There can be only one who has the balloon, uh, who holds it. Uh, and inevitably at some point during the fight for who could ever get the one balloon that exists, um, the balloon does what? It pops, right? And all of a sudden, you just have this deflated piece of you know, rubber or plastic laying on the ground, and it's no longer fun. It needs to be thrown in the trash. It becomes a choking hazard. It's not, a, it's not a good thing at all. And so it went from this great potential to something ugly and destructive and really terrible in the end. And that's how you as parents, you begin to look at balloons. When you were a kid, you know, it was just fun. But when you see one balloon and three boys or one balloon and, 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 and three of whatever your children are, uh, or two balloons and three or whatever, as long as there's not enough balloons to go around, or if there are enough and then one of them pops, you know it's all going downhill from there. There's great promise in a balloon. It's a wonderful idea that from a parent's perspective always ends badly, or at least it seems to. Uh, in the end. So this is very much like what sin does to us, that it looks wonderful, right? It looks like all of these things that we're being tempted to do, all of these things that our heart tempts us to do, all of these things that the evil one tempts us to do, that they will be satisfied, that they will be fun, they will be enjoyable. And we know because we've sinned before, all of us in the, in the building, we know that that is at least in part true, that they will be fun for a while, uh, they will be enjoyable for a minute. Uh, they will meet some sort of satisfaction, at least momentarily. Uh, and so sin has this sort of lie to all of us that we fall for over and over again, no matter how old we are, that if you will just do this, then you know everything will be fine, or you'll feel good, or you'll get what you want, or you'll have what you need. You'll be satisfied. That feeling of anxiety, that feeling of pain, that'll go away if you just do this instead. But in the end, we know that when we chase sin, on the other side of sin is always regret, is always guilt, is always destruction. That's what we talked about in brief last week, is that sin is destructive. That's what sin does, is it wreaks havoc on creation itself. And we saw that in Revelation 8 last week as God was beginning to carry out through the judgment of the seven trumpets um, this judgment on the earth itself. 
you remember last week we talked about the first trumpet and how uh, through that God uh, used that to inflict judgment on uh, dry land. And then, of course, there was judgment on the sea, and then there was the fresh water, and then there was the light in the sky, all of that being affected by God carrying out his judgment against sin. Sin is destructive. But today, as we continue along in looking at the seven trumpets in chapter 9, looking at trumpets 5 and 6, uh, we want to dive into that a little more and see this is reality when it comes to sin as a destruction, that the destruction of sin is not forced on us. It is a choice every time. Sin is a choice every time we choose to do our own thing instead of what God wants us to do. That is a willful act on our part. And even if it is uh, like a, a sin of, of, of ignorance, you know, we do something we're not supposed to or we fail to do something we're supposed to, then we don't even really know about it. Even that is, an, is a choice because we're, we're making the choice not to be open to God and his leading, but instead be open only to our own leading, only to the voice of our own sinful heart and mind. Sin is a destruction, but the destruction of sin is not forced on us. It is a choice. What we're going to see in Revelation 9 is probably, not probably, it is the most graphically terrifying part of Revelation thus far. Uh, the symbols you're going to see in Revelation 9. Um, it is probably just the most terrifying in general thus far. Uh, because whereas the first four of the seven trumpets were God, again, allowing judgment to be carried out on creation, trumpets five and six are being carried out against humanity itself. Uh, that's why at the end of chapter eight, where we ended last week, uh, there was the verse about an eagle flying overhead and saying, whoa, 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 because of the judgments that are about to come the last three trumpets. And so this is the part of Revelation where a lot of people kind of check out, right? If you haven't already, uh, because it gets scary. Uh, it, it gets troubling to think about the kind of judgment that's being spoken of. Um, but I want you to, to dive in uh, and, and to realize, we'll talk about it in a moment because it's actually say it in the scripture, but that this is something of God's wrath being carried out that's reserved for those who aren't wearing the seal of God on their forehead that we talked about a while back in Revelation 7 who are, aren't under the protection of God. God will not carry out his wrath on his children because he's already put that wrath on Jesus, but that wrath will be poured out on the rest of the earth, right? Sometimes we might, we are, you know, we, we bear the consequences of sin um, because we live in a fallen world, but God's wrath in its fullness will not be carried out against his children. Instead, it will be carried out upon the rest of the earth, and you're going to see that fleshed out in the scripture. So don't get too, like, scared or worried, and don't allow that to, to check you out, uh, because there's some very frightening imagery in this passage, but it's there for a reason, and we'll talk about that. Before we open up Revelation 9, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your truth, your perfect word. God, we thank you for the opportunity we have to be before you, and for you to be inside of us and among us this morning. God, allowing this word of truth to be implanted within us through the work of your Holy Spirit. And God, we pray that you would remove distraction, that you would remove chaos from our mind. And God, that you would even remove fear in this moment to help us to be confident in you, not in our own selves, but confident in you and what you have done for us so that we might not only hear, but that we might be transformed by your word this morning. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation chapter 9. <clears throat> and the fifth angel blew his trumpet and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit 
He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and the power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his, his name is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, the third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouth. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up the worshiping, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murderers or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Terrifying chapter. Very visual explanation that John gives of this horrific event. What's the scariest movie creature you ever remember seeing? Is there a particular movie in your childhood that the creature like really freaked you out? Uh, maybe if you have that image in your head, uh, sorry, I hate to bring that up. I hope, you know, not, not triggering anyone with bringing that up. But, um, you know, is there anything that you remember as like legitimately scary? I remember a few different things. Uh, I remember being freaked out by a few things. It wasn't really images of scary beasts. I remember in Lonesome Dove when the guy fell in the water and got bit by all the snakes. I saw that as a kid and got really freaked out. And in Lonesome Dove when the, when the lightning struck the, 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 the herd and the lightning is bouncing around the horns, I remember that. My parents... Um, you know, I, I love you if y'all are listening, but they let me watch Misery, the Stephen King movie as a kid. I don't know why in the world they did that with James Caan, um, but they did. And I still remember Kathy Lee Bates like smashing his, oh, it's terrible. You know, I, it was a terrible thing to see, but I probably didn't know what was coming. 
I also remember Pennywise, the, the it clown from the early made-for-TV series, right? And those are that's one thing that freaked me out. But one that I remember when I wasn't really a kid, but the image is ingrained in my head. Uh, I was later on, I was in high school probably. Uh, it's from the Lord of the Rings movies. Uh, anybody remember the Lord of the Rings movies? And you remember the, the orcs, like the terrible enemies, you know, that there were a lot of them. But there was like a souped-up version uh, of the orcs called the Urukai. Uh, and, and, and they were grotesque looking, the teeth and the, the weapons and all the stuff that they had. My wife is shaking her head at my nerddom right now. They were bred in Isengard, in case you were wondering. Um, but anyway, uh, these Urukai, uh, they were terrifying, right? Uh, you, you could smell them just by looking at them. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, right? When, the, when, a, when a visual evokes like other senses that aren't actually there you can just kind of like there was it was excellent makeup it was excellent directing and they were as scary as they were supposed to be right and they were trying to evoke that sense of fear all of those that i just said and whatever popped into your mind have nothing on the image that john paints right here this is a horrific scene that he's setting a future without christ is the most terrifying prospect of all and we're seeing that fleshed out in some crazy symbolic terms in Revelation 9. We're seeing what the wrath of God being poured out on the world looks like. And we're seeing what happens when God, like Paul said he would in Romans chapter 1, that he will hand them over to the lust of their flesh. When God gives us, gives the world over to what they want, the ways of the world, the ways apart from God, we're seeing in a symbolic way what that looks like. In a lot of ways, what we see in the first woe and the first trumpet with the locusts coming out of this great abyss, what we're seeing is an, like a, an upside-down copy of what's going on in heaven. The smoke rising from the pit darkens the sky and the air, unlike the beautiful smoke that rises from the altar in the throne room of God earlier in the book. Unlike natural locusts that attack grass, in, 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 in other foliage, you, you know, you've seen locusts or, or, or grasshoppers come in and just devastate a field. That's what locusts do. But unlike natural locusts that do that, these locusts are told to upset the created order, to leave all the green stuff alone and to instead attack humans. And instead of wreaking their havoc with their mouth like a natural locust does, they do it instead with their tail that suddenly is like the tail of a scorpion. Unlike the creatures in the throne room, that are presented as these strange yet amazingly beautiful creatures who have different faces and different qualities about them. Uh, what we see in the creatures that are described here is this, this gross, ugly amalgamation of just bits and pieces of weird things put together. The face of a man, the, the hair of a woman, the, the teeth of a lion. It, it is a, a, a grotesque image that John is painting when he talks about these creatures storming up from the smoke coming out of the great abyss. And unlike the armies of heaven that are led by angelic hosts, angelic lieutenants, what we have here is one led by the name, the God named Apollyon, which some people believe is Satan, but it's probably more likely a chief lieutenant of Satan. Whereas you have like archangels, this would be like the same version, but of a demonic reality who is leading the armies of hell to come and wreak havoc on the planet. Satan, sin, and evil always promise good from their appearance, but in the end is always destruction. Their end is always destruction. And what we're seeing in Revelation, and one thing we're going to see more and more of amongst everything else that's going on, what we're seeing in Revelation is, and this goes back to our very first Sunday when we dove into it, is God pulling back through the image, through the vision that he's giving John, God pulling back the curtains on what's really going on. 
what things really look like. And this, we are finally seeing evil for what evil really is. We are finally seeing the things that look wonderful on the surface, that look amazing, the things that tempt us towards sin, the thing that tempt us to turn our back on God and go our own ways after our own lusts. We are finally seeing them for what they really are. And, and God will continue to do that through this vision that he gives to John. We're seeing them as the truly destructive forces that they are. They bring great pain, these locusts. A sting that lasts five months in their tail. So much pain and chaos and misery that as John writes, people will long to die, but death will flee from them. It is a terrifying reality. But then it continues. The sixth trumpet is blown, and now we see a great army of evil coming from the Euphrates. As God tells the four angels that are set up along the river Euphrates who are designated for this moment in time to do their thing, to come and allow that wrath to come. For the Israelites, the enemy lied beyond the Euphrates, and the same was true for the Roman later on. And they always believed that an invasion would come from the eastern direction, would come from, from the Euphrates, coming that way, that if they were ever going to be overthrown by some great force, that is, from which the, that is the area from which the force would come. And so the angels who had, in a sense, you kind of get the idea that they were holding the line, they were keeping the enemy at bay. Now God has pulled them off the front lines, and this army that is unimaginably large comes in to wreak havoc and death. Again, it's a terrifying sight. Horses that breathe fire, smoke, and sulfur have heads of lions and tails that sting like scorpions but look like snakes with heads. And not only are they a terrifying sight, there's a terrifying amount of them. In my ESV it says two times 10,000 times 10,000. It might say uh, myriads of myriads or two times myriads of myriads or something like that in yours. Uh, we believe myriad is, is about 10,000. That's just a guess. It's a lot. But if you do that twice 10,000 times 10,000, that is 200 million. It's a large force. That would have been incomprehensible, a number that large, in John's day. An army of 200 million fire-breathing horses. Right? Hollywood, books, have nothing on what we're seeing here in Revelation. This is what is coming from the east to bring God's judgment and what is indicative of what evil really is and the way it really wrecks destruction on not only creation, but on humanity itself. Because unlike the locusts that came before, these riders on these beastly horses are given the power to kill, and they do so to the degree of a third of humanity going back in agreement with the third of creation in chapter 8. Again, a third is no small number, especially when you're talking about right now on earth a little bit over 7 billion people. So in the midst of all this destruction, let's stop for a second and note a couple of really important things. One, God is still in control. I read a quote earlier this week on Facebook. Um, I couldn't remember who it was from. I went back and I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. So I can't give credit where credit is due, but I can't tell you that the credit's not mine because uh, I didn't come up with this idea. Uh, but uh, the quote was something along the lines of, we should remember as we read Revelation that God does not come to bring disorder to an orderly situation. God is coming to bring order out of disorder. And even though there's so much chaos and there's so much disorder in Scripture, in, in, in Revelation it seems like, 
It is God coming to bring his judgment and to bring order out of everything. God is judging in order to make the way for what's coming at the end, in order to set everything right, in order for justice to finally be enacted. And so we see that going on, but we also see very directly that God is in control of even this situation. Okay, first of all, you have to realize that God is the one who told us the the angels with the trumpets to blow the trumpets. He's the one who gave the command to make this happen. So he's in charge there. But then at the fifth trumpet, when the, the angel falls from heaven to open the gates to the abyss, uh, it's, that's the gates that, that God gave him, or keys that God gave him in order to open up the abyss. God himself allows that to happen. Uh, again, kind of pulling back the defenses and allowing Satan to wreak havoc like the roaring lion who is, who is seeking to devour anyone uh, that comes in his way. So God opens the door, allowing that to happen. And then uh, with the second passage, or in the, the second one we talked about, the, the sixth trumpet, um, God tells the angels to let those who are gathered at the Euphrates to get out of the way and to, to bring that judgment. And so it's not as if these things are happening as a surprise to God or as a challenge to God. God is going to use all of this disorder and chaos in order to ultimately bring his perfect order into a chaotic situation. God protects his people as well. As I said earlier, and as it said in the passage about the fifth seal, the locusts are told that they can harm those without the seal of God on their foreheads. I don't know if the people of God have been removed. They're, like, they're not on earth anymore. Maybe they're still there. Whatever. They're protected in the midst of this situation. No matter how scary or bleak the situation seems, God is in control and will protect his children. And that's one thing we can take to the bank from this passage. But I really want to get at what I think is the heart of this passage. And, and that's the, the last paragraph of chapter 9. After all of this legitimately insane descriptions of judgment, terrifying events that are going to happen when God begins to close the book on the created order and start anew with a new heaven and a new earth, all of that terrible judgment isn't enough to move the remaining humans on earth to repentance. It isn't enough for them to call out to God. Not even a third of them being taken out by these chaotic and terrifying warriors on the back of a horse. None of that brings them to the point of repentance. That should when you get to verse 20 and you read the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that should, if you're reading that the first time, you should stop and say, really? Like all of this is going on and, and there's no one who says, oh my goodness, God protect me from this. Save me from the disaster that is already upon us and the one that is coming. Despite the chaos and death, no repentance is made. Not only that, the people remain in their sin. They worship the very things that are destroying them. It says there in Revelation that we just read, they worship demons despite the demonic forces that are torturing and killing them. It says that they worship idols despite the fact that those idols are made by human hands out of metal and wood and all kinds of other stuff and in reality can do nothing to them. And if you're thinking, oh, idols, you know, like little gods that, that just, that, you know, are, are made of wood or, or, or cast iron or, or whatever, you know, we have idols too. And a lot of times we make ours out of plastic. Can I get an amen to somebody? 
Well, we make ours out of, out of ideas, the, the American dream or whatever it is we might be, tra- be chasing in our world. We have plenty of idols to spare and to have chased after in our own world, in our own culture. They continue to worship the idols, even though worshiping the idols is part of what got them in the situation. And despite the murderous horrors going on around them, they continue to murder each other. Despite the surreal images of demonic beasts of destruction, they continue to practice sorcery, practicing the ways of the evil one. They worship their own desires at the cost of others through sexual immorality and theft, even though there's all sorts of pain and destruction around them. You know, humanity has a knack, has a knack for choosing its own destruction. We would call that, in a theology class, original sin. We are all born dead. We are born into a dead, sin-filled body. And only by the grace of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he offers us might that sin stain be cleansed from our soul. That's the only hope that we have. And because of that mark that is upon us, the mark of the first Adam, the old man, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And we all, therefore, have a knack for choosing our own destruction. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. When you're tempted toward a sin and it looks wonderful, but you know on the other side of that sin, destruction waits. No man has ever cheated on his wife or wife cheated on her husband uh, because they were thinking about how wonderful that judgment that was on the other side would be. No one ever decided, I really want to destroy my family. I really want to wreck another person. No, there was a temptation that said, if you do this, you will feel good. You'll feel good about yourself. You'll be built up. It'll be awesome, right? It'll be just like it is in the movies, just like it is in the books. But no, in reality, you knew destruction was on the other side, but you allowed yourself to be fooled by the temptation that the evil one so readily offers us to say all this sin will make you feel wonderful we have a knack for choosing our own destruction but God wants to give us so much better you know what I wonder if this isn't in our culture that we live in how we lead out in any conversation about sin with the world Because if we lead out with, well, because of, pick your sin of choice, because you practice this, because this is your lifestyle, or this is how you identify, because of of this, you're you're lost and you're going to burn in hell. Now, we know that because of sin, we all face the reality of being lost and burning in hell, but perhaps instead of leading with that truth, we can also follow it up or maybe even start with, God has so much better for you. Like his way is always better. God always provides a better way. Every single time and in every circumstance. It's not as if that better way is hard to find. God wants to give it to you. God wants you to live in such a way that brings him glory and brings you joy. And it is his way, not your way. And until we can follow not our own will, but follow God's will for us, we will not realize the kind of joy that God can bring, that he wants to give to us. It's not like he's holding out. You see, that's the sin, or that's the lie that makes sin so temptuous, right? And it's the earliest lie that Satan gave humanity. When he told Eve, who was looking upon the garden, you know, God, basically, this is what he said. I'm not quoting exactly, but this is basically what he said. God's holding out on you. 
He's afraid you're going to be like him. He's afraid you're going to see the difference between right and wrong. He's afraid you're going to have the wisdom that, that he wants to keep for himself. You're not going to die. I don't care what God said. That's not going to happen. Satan is always tempting with sin that way. Oh, if you'll just give in, God is holding out on you. When in reality, God has better for you. God doesn't want you to worship demons. No, God has angelic hosts who will one day fight the battle of all battles, both for his glory and for your protection, carrying out vengeance against evil and all that ensnares us. God does not want you to fall to idolatry because God, through the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, present and available to you today, wants a real relationship with you. He, the creator of the universe, wants a real and personal relationship with you right now, today. He wants to indwell you with his Holy Spirit and be your closest confidant every single moment of every day. That's why he doesn't want you worshiping some stupid idol. God does not want you to be at war with each other within yourself because he has come to be the prince of peace in our life. He's going to do it in some pretty gnarly ways. He's going to carry out some violence when it needs to happen. But his goal is for the peace of heaven to exist for all of us for eternity. And you don't need to turn to worshiping the world and its sorceries, worshiping the ways of evil or the ways of the evil one, because God has the best, most supernatural truth in heaven you can ever imagine. And expressions of self-centered love like sexual immorality and theft. Oh, if we could get those away and extend and express that other-centered agape love through things like sexual propriety and actually giving to others instead of taking for ourselves. God always provides a better way. Revelation chapter 9 verse 20 ought to break your heart. And ought to leave no doubt in your mind that as God wrote in Genesis 6, every inclination of man's heart is only evil all the time. That we are hopeless without him. And that even when we see how devastating sin can be, our foolish heart will still choose it apart from him. It leaves me like Paul in Romans 7 saying, oh, at the end of Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me? But if you know the story of Romans, you know what comes next in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for really good people. Isn't that what it says? For people who man up or woman up and and, and, and get rid of sin and overcome addiction and do all those things. No, that's not what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God always provides a better. It's yours. That's the part sometimes. Man, sometimes I wish he would take away from us. You know, like, God, just make me want everything that's good. Make me not want to sin anymore. You know, have you ever prayed one of those prayers? Like, God, when I, like, if you, you have, a, like, a real sin issue, like a real addictive kind of sin issue, you're like, God, would you just, like, make me nauseous when I think that thought? God, would you 
somehow make me hate that idea. No, sin is normally a corruption of a good gift from God that Satan has turned upside down and then delivered back to you in such a way where it has a little bit of truth in it, but then it has a lot of evil in it. So Satan and, and yourself is taking a natural desire, a good desire, and turning it into something evil. And God's suddenly not just normally, he might, but he's normally not just suddenly going to rewire your brain so that you hate that thing. Because part of the reason why you like it is because there's some good hidden in it that's just been perverted by the evil one. Right, when we pray those prayers, God, if you just make me hate sin, and it'd be easier, that's not what God had in mind. Because for whatever reason, God and his mystery wanted to give us the choice of him or not him. And when we look at it through our human eyes today, not him sometimes seems very tempting. Because not him chasing after something besides God. Well, that's, that's here right now. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to pray to it. That's right here in front of me. And especially if it's a sin habit. Like I know that there's some temporary happiness there. And so I'll just, I'll chase it for a minute. Man, you know, the, my, 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 my pain, my depression, my anxiety, my, my guilt over sin, whatever. It's just getting to the degree that I can't take it anymore. Let me, you know, let me drown myself in, in, in let me drown myself in, in, in just vegging out. Let me drown myself in, in alcohol or drugs or food or, or sex or any of the, 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 the things that we often choose instead of God. Let me drown myself in those and I'll I'll wake up tomorrow morning, I'll I'll feel bad about it, but I know for a moment I'll feel good. Goodness gracious, can we not realize in our through the sinful humanity that we have that instead of a moment of a little bit of feeling good, that there is an eternity of joy waiting on us if we instead choose the way that God has for us. And I'm not talking about just in heaven, just in the by and by. I'm talking about a God who is present today and who will bring you joy today. Yes, life is going to suck sometimes, but God will still be a good God who will meet us in the midst of that pain, who will meet us in the midst of that reality. And even when things are hard, he will still give us a joy because God always provides a better way. Man, I wish the world knew. Make your pursuit of happiness about your sexual identity or your gender identity or your political identity. God provides a better way. Always. You want to make it about all these things we worry so much about. The kind of house you live in, the kind of car you drive, the 401k that you have. Those things are, yeah, we can worry about those. Those are important to some degree. But God always provides a better way. There is no idol that will suffice what you really need. Because the end of sin is always destruction. And Revelation 9 pulls back the curtain on that reality and says, you thought you were chasing life. Here's what you were chasing. Terrifying destruction. So bad that you will beg to die and it'll flee from you. That's what sin gives. Spoiler alert. God's got a lot better in store. Chapters 21 and 22. I want to jump there immediately. It's coming. God has much more in store. God always provides a better way. So what's your choice? God or destruction? It doesn't look that way from the world, right? Because sin looks good from the world, but in reality, it's God or destruction. We make that decision in the ultimate sense 
by choosing this yes or no to a personal saving relationship with Jesus. And if there's anyone here who does not have a saving relationship, anybody joining us online that does not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, today can be the day you start one. If you want to know what that's like, what that's about, I'll be down here to pray with you during our invitation. I'll hang around after the service if someone would like to talk then. Even if you don't talk to me, talk to a trusted Christian friend, talk to a family member, someone that you know, and tell them that you think you want to start that relationship and ask them for guidance on that. If you're joining us online, just send us a message or something. Reach out to somebody and let us know you want to talk. We'll reach back. And for those of you who do have a saving relationship with Jesus, it's also a daily choice that we make. God or destruction. Am I going to choose my own ways and the stuff that comes with that? Or am I going to choose the ways of God that from the outside, worldly vision seems harder, but in the end, always brings joy? What areas of your life are you needing to make that choice to choose God's way instead of destruction? What areas of your life is destruction wreaking havoc? What areas of your life is God blessing because you've chosen his way? Let's think on these things as we pray and sing together here in just a moment. I'll be down here to pray with you about anything. The altar will be open if you'd like to come and kneel and pray there. And again, I'll be around after the service if you want to pray together then. Well, let's stand together. I'm going to pray. Our band is going to lead us in a couple more songs. And as they do, would you move in whatever way God is calling? Father, once again, we thank you for today. Thank you for your son, Jesus. God, we thank you for your presence here with us. God, we thank you for the fact that you will, since we bear the mark of your son, Jesus, in our hearts, through your sacrifice, God, that you will protect us when the day comes. Not because we deserve it, but because of what you've done. And God, if there's anyone here listening that is not a follower of your son, Jesus, God, would you convict them to act on that, not out of fear of what may happen, but out of the goodness of what you will do. God, for those of us who follow you, God, will you give us wisdom, will you provide conviction of your Holy Spirit to show us where we have chosen destruction over you, where we have taken what looks like the easy, better way, but in reality it's one that leads to destruction. God, when you reveal that to us, will you show us how, through the leadership of your Holy Spirit, to choose you instead? I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.